Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's September 18th, 2012, and our special guest is Jamie Vollmer, the author of Schools Cannot Do It Alone. Jamie, thanks so much for being here. It's a great joy. Well, I, I told you as we were talking in the pre-show that I really enjoyed this book, so I think we're going to have a fun conversation. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, we get support from Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate. I put the logo up there for my Hack Your Education tour. I'm currently in Portland. There's a great synergy here between Jamie's work and the workshops that I'm doing for Hack Your Education. So we'll have a lot of fun talking about that. This coming weekend is Seattle. And if you're interested, go to hackyoureducation.com. The Learning 2.0 conference recordings are up at learning20.com. And that was a lot of fun and a great keynote speakers from all over the world. We encourage you to look at those. Again, everything there is free. Coming up, the Library 2.012 conference, just an overwhelming response from presenters. We're going to have a packed conference, the Future of Libraries, October 3rd through 5th. It is 24 hours a day. Uh, thanks to San Jose State University for being the founding sponsor of that conference. Uh, lots and lots of fun. Library2012.com. And then in November, Lucy Gray and I host the amazing Global Education Conference, five days, 24 hours a day. Again, all free. Still taking submissions. Uh, in fact, Library 2.012 is in a uh, post-deadline submission process because they're both highly inclusive conferences and we encourage participation. So uh, feel free to still pr propose to present at either and we sure hope that you will consider attending. Tomorrow, Charles, Charles Fidel talks to us about what students should learn in the 21st century. Uh, interestingly, Charles takes, I would say, almost an opposite approach to what we're going to talk about tonight. Not entirely opposite, but he really feels like you should start with the what before anything else. And I'm hearing Jamie say we need to start with a conversation. We'll see if he agrees with me. Then Bob Glinner talks about his film, Schools That Change Communities. And Nikhil Goyal talks about his new book, One Size Does Not Fill All. Uh, fit all, run with rich heart on making thinking visible. And then this session I can't wait for, the true history of the MOOC, Thomas Vander Ark, um, later in the month, and then lots of fun coming up. Lots of sessions, hopefully one that will interest you. All of the sessions are recorded. They're up at futureofeducation.com. We heard last week from Shirley Blake Plock about his uh, work. Uh, having left the school system to create this after-school program. Pat Faringa talked to us about homeschooling and unschooling. Angie McAllister from Phoenix University on learning analytics. An eclectic series, if nothing else. Anyway, the recorded sessions are up there in full Blackboard Collaborate format and MP3 format. So with this modest-sized crowd, I'm interested in why that might be, we probably don't have to do much with this map here, but you probably know the drill. Click on the star and then click again on the map. As I indicated, I'm in Portland and it's gorgeous here, although I'm missing the fall colors from Park City, much to my chagrin. Feel free to shout out in the chat. Well, we'll move right along. There is a Mighty Bell space for this session. Mighty Bell is the content and curation program. I put up some of Jamie's videos there. You can also see his website. And the links are in that Mighty Bell space where you can continue the conversation after today's session. So Jamie, this reading this book was a treat for me, um, especially because of Chicago unfolding sort of at the same time. And I checked the news right before we got on, and apparently there has been some agreement that teachers are going back to work. But it sure feels like there's so much in your material that could inform that kind of a crisis. Um, it's been out how long now? Well, we we're just past two years. And it took seven years to write. So you've been, you've <laughs> been doing this for a long time. Uh, we're going to talk about that story. Um, I, as I read the book, I kind of read four separate journeys or transformations that take place. 
So one is clearly your own. Right? You go through a process yourself of sort of shifting your thinking. Another is yes. the economy and our work culture. The third mm -hmm. would be the expectations placed for the role of schools in our yes. lives. And the fourth would be changes in our understanding of cognitive models and intelligence. I know you didn't organize it that way, but does that seem like that's a fair sort of larger picture? Yes. I, I mean, of course, because of what you said uh, regarding where the conversation starts, I think there's, I, I was pressed so hard by so many educators to do this sort of how-to piece that I enjoyed writing the pieces that you just described when it came to saying, okay, how do we actually do this? That was, for me, that was very tedious but absolutely necessary. How do we put the pieces together to build the understanding and support we need? And that's really the second half of the book, right? So the, mm -hmm. the first half is the is the four journeys, but, but not organized that way. That's my own organization. Of it. Fair enough. And then the second yep. half is this great conversation. And I couldn't help but notice that you had an ice cream company called the Great Midwestern Ice Cream Company, and then you have this thing called the Great Conversation. So I'm assuming you love that word, great. Uh, I guess um, I don't. I can't think of better titles. <laughs> that's what I would attribute. That. <laughs> oh, that's very fun. Okay, so let's talk about your journey. The, the most important line in the book for me came very close to the end but it felt like it kind of summarized um, the, the shift in your perspective. You write, after years of thinking and reading and working, I'm convinced that the best approach is a low-tech, high-touch proposal that costs nothing. But it took you a while to get there, didn't it? Yes. Uh, I started out, since you referenced the ice cream company, I started out if in the world of business and running this small manufacturing company, we made ice cream. Um, we, we made good ice cream. We always knew we did. And then in the spring of 1984, People Magazine, that fine research periodical, people decided they needed to know what the best ice cream in America was, so they chose our product, June 84. And I only bring that up because for no other reason, I don't want to mislead the listeners. For no other reason, I was recruited to become part of a committee talking about the future of public education here in my adopted state of Iowa. Uh, it wasn't because of my keen intellect. It wasn't because of my lifelong commitment. It was because I got famous. I had my, I've had my 15 minutes of fame. Uh, People Magazine, the New York Times wrote an article. We were on the Today Show. President Reagan served it in the White House. There, there was even an anatomy magazine that picked this as the best ice cream in America. It's true. It's called Playboy. And <laughs> all of that press... I was press, waiting for that shoe to drop. All of that press brought me to the attention of the Secretary of Education in Iowa, and he invited me to be part of this group. And it's, it's absolutely responsive to your question, because when I show up, for the first Iowa Business Roundtable in 1988, I am very far away from that line that you just read. I'm convinced schools are deeply flawed. The people working inside the schools are the problem, hunkered down in the monopoly, no interest to change, protected by tenure, and the most simplistic and yet widely heard uh, S solution to our schools, if you would just run it like a business, everything would be okay. I showed up for that first Iowa Business Roundtable meeting 25 years ago, convinced of those three things. So you're right. It was a long arc from where I started to where I am today. So intriguingly, where you started in the, uh, your description of those views sounds so much like our actual current political dialogue. You, you must notice yeah. that, right? That both the right and the left seem to be saying the same kind of high accountability business strategy story. Uh, and here you've been yes. working for years on this, and it seems like there's sort of little change in the political dialogue. So we're, so we're going to look at how you do think this ends up getting solved because it's clearly not a policy level solution that you're proposing. 
That is true. Okay, and along with this, you, you quote, you coin a word, notesia, which is the combination. Nostesia. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the combination nostesia. of nostalgia and amnesia. Don't, don't mispronounce my phony baloney made up words here, Steve. I mean, get it right. I loved that. Uh, and it, it was interesting because you say it's a combination of, uh, of age and years out of school. You multiply those two together. And if you do any kind of active volunteering, you cut that in half. But otherwise, most people right. have this sort of uh, increasingly strident perspective on what schools should be that often doesn't even match with their own experiences. But, but I, I think that's fairly accurate. Um, so you go through a variety of stages of understanding that are explained in the book. And I don't want you to feel like you need to rehearse each sort of stage. But clearly, the seminal yeah. moment is the, the blueberry story. And you must tell it 100 times. But if you're willing to give it a go again. I will tell, I will tell it in a truncated form, because would that I had only told it 100 times. Um, the setup, and actually I've already introduced it, the, the setup is I'm convinced of these three assumptions. And I find when I join the roundtable, I've never met a single other person on the committee. And yet within 20 minutes, all the business folks who were there, we had bonded. We loved one another because we all had the same three assumptions. So my assumptions, the system is broken and needs to change. The people inside are the principal problem, change resistant, hunker down, and run it like a business. Well, what happens is the short, I get my sleeve caught in the great education reform machine. So while I agree to join this committee out of some civic sense of duty, I'm pretty sure I'm only going to go to a couple meetings. Well, that doesn't happen. I wind up getting really interested, very involved. And after about 18 months of volunteer work, I quit my job at the ice cream company and became executive director of the Iowa Business Roundtable. Now I have a platform from which to pontificate, and I do with a vengeance. Now, there's no educators who want to hear me. I'm just a bully. Think of my point of view. But every chamber of commerce in the state was keen to hear the message. So for the first year of my tenure on the roundtable, I wander from county to county to county, talking to economic development groups, business groups, chambers, giving them the gospel. The system's broken. Those people are the enemy. And if they did what we did, and I get a standing ovation in every place. But after about a year, if I'm truly attempting to be honest with myself, I realize I haven't managed to affect a single change, which was kind of the idea, was to change the system to improve student success. So it's with some real excitement when at the end of that first year, and this is just before the Christmas holidays in 1991, a superintendent called and asked if I would come right after the break and do an in-service presentation. I didn't even know what an in-service was. And I agreed, and I showed up, and I gave them my speech. I gave this speech to a captive audience of teachers in a western Iowa school district who had to be there first day back. It's a late start, so the kids are coming at noon. They've got a million things they'd rather do. They're forced to listen to me. So it was not a particularly receptive room to begin with. And I give them my spiel. If I ran my business the way you people operate your schools, blah, blah, blah. I get to the end of this, forget applause. It's dead silent in that room. And I have to admit that I'm a tad intimidated. And I go to go off the stage, and the superintendent's looking back saying, Q&A, Q&A. So I walk back to the center of the stage, and it's there really where this, as you described it, the seminal moment takes place. As soon as I get there, a woman's hand goes up. She seemed polite. She was a woman of a certain age, nicely dressed. I thought, I'll start with her. She'll be pleasant. I found out later she was a 27-year veteran high school English teacher who'd been laying in the bushes for me for about an hour. 
She started as nice as you please. Mr. Vollmer, we understand you make good ice cream. I replied, best ice cream in America. She said, something tells me you use nothing but grade A ingredients, your nuts, your berries, your flavorings. In my arrogance, I interrupt her. I say, excuse me, our specification to the supplier is AAA. A little smile, by the way, shot across her face that I did not understand at the time. She said, yes, sir. If you should be coming onto your receiving dock where the shipments arrive, and you get a shipment of blueberries that do not meet your AAA standards, what do you do? And in the silence of that room, you could hear the trap snap. I knew I was dead meat, but I wasn't going to lie to the lady. I said, ma'am, I would send them back. She jumps to her feet. She points her finger in my face. She says, that's right. You would send them back. We can never send back the blueberries our suppliers send us. We take them big, small, rich, poor, hungry, abused, brilliant, creative, cautious, frightened, homeless, head lice, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. English is their second language. We take them all, Mr. Vollmer, and that's why it's not a business. It's school. You have to be brain dead not to get it. You have to will yourself not to listen in a moment like that. Fortunately, I guess I had enough honesty. I was not so married to my position that I couldn't entertain the thought that maybe, possibly, perhaps, I was misinformed. And that was a very important moment. I will tell you this. I would love to tell you I was a changed person. I was not. When you get an idea in your head, come on, we're human beings. We get an idea in our head more to the point, especially referencing your political comments earlier regarding what we see today, you get a prejudice in your guts. You just don't surrender it because you are exposed to an alternative set of facts. It took years. But that was, you are correct, that was the crack in that wall of certainty. I have since referred to myself at the time as the perfect double threat, ignorant and arrogant. Well, I was a little bit less of both of those when I left that day. We've talked on the show about the, the sort of intriguing recursive notion of education and public dialogue, that uh, good public dialogue depends on people who sort of thoughtfully understand the depth of other perceptions and different ways of looking at problems. And, and yet it seems like we're sort of caught in this catch-22 cycle of um, shallow conversation leading to shallow education. And uh, I, I feel like your journey that you describe is, is sort of wonderful in its honesty, but also in the several points beyond the Blueberry story where you have these epiphanies, different epiphanies that you kind of honestly catalog. Mm -hmm. And that part of what the book does, in addition to talking about schooling differently, is it also shows sort of the intellectual journey someone can go through. Um, I don't want you to have to rehearse all of the stories, uh, and I appreciate for the, so let's say those tens of thousands of times you've told that story, plus one yeah. now. But um, the, sort of another very big one is your, your, your moment of understanding when you realize that you can't just help schools without actually addressing the kind of cultural DNA, the community involvement. And so yes. what is your sense of the connection between change and community involvement? Well, let's go back to what you started with. And when you were referring to the guest that's going to be at the conference who takes a different point of view and he says we have to start with what? For a very long time, I believed we have to start with what? What do we want these kids to know and be able to do? What do we want to have as the end product of this system? It was when I began to see school districts, superintendents, smart school board members, engaged teachers, aggressively begin to sort out and define the what, and then begin to make concrete steps towards changing a system that would produce the newly defined what. And they went forward, and they brought in consultants, and they read the, the literature, and they 
sat around after hours at, at tables laden with caffeine and carbohydrates and they argued and they processed and then they went to conferences and brought back more. And after about 15 to 18 months of all this really smart, very hard work, most of it on their own time, the only thing that changed in those school districts, it wasn't assessment, it wasn't the curriculum, it wasn't instruction. The only thing that changed was the superintendent. Well, watch that happen to good people, not once, dozens and dozens of times. And even I, who readily admit I'm a tad slow on the uptake, even I began to think, we're missing a step. And it's there, right then, at that moment, when I begin to move a step backwards, as much as that irritated the A-type personality that I carry, I had to take a step backwards and say, yeah, maybe before we get to what? We have a legal and fiduciary, and I would argue moral responsibility, to effectively identify that what, and then lay out a process so that all children are prepared in a way that we think makes sense. But it does us no good if every single two years there's a complete change in leadership and everything is ripped back to the status quo ante. There's the connection between making the change and the culture of the town. Because you didn't refer to it directly, but my number one rule is you cannot touch a school without touching the culture of the town. And if you follow that, if all the people listening follow that to its logical conclusion, what that means is if we really are going to increase student success broadly defined, we have to do more than change our schools. We have to change America. And that's why it's so damn hard. So there's this, you have several quotes in the book. Um, we're going to get to the really um, shocking one from Jefferson, one I was not aware of but, and shouldn't have been shocked by, but is, is a very good one. Um, but there's this thread through the book of the power of democracy. You've got quotes from uh, de Tocqueville and from Jefferson and I think Adams. And um, I felt like there's a little bit of a tension here because mm -hmm. the, the description you give for the Great Conversation is in fact a little bit one-sided. Uh, yes. The Q&A piece is very short at the end, and I wondered, yes. have you reflected on that afterwards and thought any more about um, maybe having the, the sort of the democratic roots that appear in the book be more a part of that process? Yes, I did. I have. I do all the time. Um, a, a, a phrase that I have thought of many times in this context is, a conversation is not a monologue in the presence of witnesses. And so let's go back to one little piece because you were kind in your words regarding my own transformation in this intellectual process. But two things happened the day of the blueberry story. Two things happened in the story I described where I go actually into a school and be a teacher's aide for a day. But let's just take symbolically the blueberry lady, as she's, been she's now called. She could have gone back to her room and said nothing. She could have cursed my skinny butt all the way down that hallway, getting ready for those kids to show up after lunch. Steve, she stood up. She stood up and she was armed with the one thing. You talk about a shallow conversation. She was armed with the one thing that every single person working inside a public school in America has today. She was armed with the truth. And I stood on the stage, all suited up, representing the business and political establishment of the entire state. I loomed over her on this stage. She's down there in the audience. She stood up and she spoke the truth. It takes both of those things. Now, you add the piece that you mentioned, which I readily admit is a little thin in the book, that then other people have to listen and then respond. So that if I say that I have, I don't want to use the word retreat, I have correctly identified the starting point, 
in the conversation preceding the what question. Well, it turns out that in this democracy, someone has said, Jamie, it sounds like you're promoting democracy. I don't think it's working anymore. My response is, I don't think we're trying it, which references your shallow conversation. But I start from the idea, and this is why the, the richness of the conversation is lacking, and I, I readily admit it. I start from the idea that we have to begin the conversation by front-end loading our success story. Because there's so much viral negativity, Steve, that the public, the vast majority of which no longer have children in school, the public is steeped in this negativity soup so that you can't get them even to listen without them having say, oh, you're just being an apologist. Or, or, or you're just trying, if you were a teacher or an administrator, oh, you're just trying to feather your own nest. I start from the point we have to begin the conversation by front-end loading stories of our success just to get them to begin to listen. I assume at some point you're going to refer to the long list of things that I have put in the book about what's been added to school. Somehow or another, in order to get to that authentic democratic dialogue, we've got to get people to say, huh, I never thought about that before. Because now they're all locked in this mental model that is more likely created by critics on talk radio than it is by the woman in the, in the blueberry story who really knows what the starting point is. I really loved the book. I want to be clear about that. And, and as tedious as the second half tends to be, not because it's not interesting, <laughs> but because it's so right. uh, detailed, uh, it was actually... Yes, as, put, 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 put <laughs> screw A into <laughs> slot B. Yes. I hated writing the second half of the book. Well, but I actually loved it because, uh, um, because it was so... You, you gave justifications and clarification for why each step was important. At the same time that I loved it, I also sort of felt like it, uh, it had this sense of being, um, you know, a little bit too um, instruction-oriented, right? That it, was, that it felt very much like it was, you know, screw A goes into slot B or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, yes. Where I wanted to go with it was... Um, Thinking about policy implications, because you talk about the you know the importance of Washington actually providing context or support for these kind of local community discussions, and I and I wanted to go beyond that to beyond education, but just sort of more democratically, just to sort of local discussions, but also one you know understanding that something this structured and methodical uh, is a little bit hard to think about how you would see a policy discussion that would promote this kind of local engagement. Am I over-reading the tension, or is it there? No, it's definitely there. And what's taken place since? You asked me how long it's been out. When I first got into this, which is, again, late 80s, very early 90s, 75% of the state superintendents of school, the chief state school officers, 75% were lifelong educators. They'd come up through the ranks. They weren't monolithic, but at least most of them had done the job. At last check, that number is 42%. That I spoke in South Carolina to the South Carolina School Boards Association, and I was preceded by their brand new, newly elected state superintendent, a brigadier general. I'm sure he's a fine man. I'm sure he served his country well. It was very clear from the things that he said that he had a very narrow political agenda that was not informed by anything that you and I would recognize as reality when it comes to schools. I spoke in Arizona, and the new state school officer there, lovely woman, probably in her 30s, trust me, I would trade her even for age, but she stood up and she said, we're so glad that we've now instituted the standardized test, the high-stakes gatekeeping standardized test, we're so pleased in the department that now we finally got it so it's every year. 
That way, you folks won't be tempted to take the year off. She was speaking to a room full of educators. I couldn't believe somebody didn't throw a chair. Who thinks ahead of time, oh, I think I'll phone it in this year? In Oklahoma, the new state superintendent is a dentist. I checked. The head of the dental board is not a school superintendent. Go figure. In the time since the book, it has become more and more apparent to me that this rich, grassroots conversation must begin, and it must begin in earnest. And to the extent that my little how-to manual even gives anybody an entry point, well, then I think that that will have been worthwhile. But it is absolutely not the, the full definition or description of how we can do it. What does come through really clearly are your commitments to understanding, trust, permission, and support. That these are prerequisites yes. to anything happening. Yes. And, and kind of intriguingly as well, you, you model this again in the book on your own story because you, you talk about how thoughtful people were to you over the course of years as you went through this progression of change them understanding you and being willing to kind of help you see and, and even sort of bring you onto school grounds and give you a day of actual hard labor to, to allow you mm -hmm. to kind of learn these lessons. So how do, right. we, how do we think about this from the policy level? Uh, you're, you're making efforts there. I'm doing this Hack Your Education tour. Um, lots of people doing lots of good stuff all over the country. But it doesn't feel like that's moving the needle of the larger political discussion. Have you had thoughts about how we do that? Here's, um, here's my sort of Pollyanna response to that, Steve. And by the way, if you're my age and you were not hot for Haley Mills when you were 12 years old, something is wrong with you. But my Pollyanna answer to that is the pendulum swings. The pendulum has swung very far in a direction that I find disruptive. You mentioned that I do believe that the feds and the state governments have a role in guidance when it comes to helping us define the what. I know Mark Tucker would very much like us to model other countries where the what is really sort of framed from a national level. I want to tell you the natural tension in that for me is I am absolutely convinced that the farther the decision maker is from the child, the dumber the decision gets. That said, what I see is this really wild swing in the direction of national tests, standardized, put out to the lowest bidder, machine scored, using the word accountability and, and mutating that word so that the public begins to think that you can actually get some notion of who's being held accountable by a single standardized test given on a given day. That pendulum is symbolized by certain individuals in the country who have sort of made it their badge of honor. I think that pendulum, if you look very carefully, which has driven policy, I think that pendulum is starting to swing ever so slightly back the other way. There are school districts in Texas, for example, that you may know of, started in 2008 where, you know, we, we have uh, no child left behind as a result of Texas. Uh, after that debacle, school districts, about 32 of them, if I'm not mistaken, started saying, you know what, we're in this jam because we didn't offer our own vision. And we allowed other people to fill the vacuum. There's a, I don't know whether I use it in the book or not, there's a Churchill quote, when the eagles are silent, the parrots will jabber. Well, we've got a lot of jabbering parrots out there now. And gradually, gradually, we're starting to see eagles standing up and saying, this is what we think should happen in our schools. This is what our vision is. And that original 32 school districts is now up to over 150. And this, I'd like to think, is responsive to your point because Austin is beginning to pay attention.
It's not just the Texas school administrators. It's not just the TEA. Grassroots folks down at the coffee shop are saying to their legislators, you know, we're not so sure that this is the way we want our schools to go. I think that there are little, to mix the metaphor of the pendulum, there's little green shoots. There are little signs that we can have an authentic conversation at the grassroots level that begins to affect policy. Because heaven knows the idea of bringing it from the top down has not and will not work. I was intrigued at the national media coverage of Chicago because I actually expected it to be more one-sided than it was. I felt like that was maybe uh -huh. representative of a little bit of a shift, that there wasn't this sort of quick assumption that teachers just didn't want to be held accountable and were lazy. There was right. a richer dialogue. But it does feel as though your pendulum swing is intimately associated mm -hmm. with our economic models. And, and maybe True. part of it is experiencing difficulty and recognizing that we are not succeeding in areas begins to open the door to the conversations. So if we could shift just slightly for a moment, I, I do want to get back to that Jefferson quote on selecting and sorting, because you call this okay. the flaw in the system, right? It's selecting yeah. system. And the quote is essentially Jefferson saying our, our school system should be raking the genius, geniuses from the rubbish with the idea that the rubbish being the students who are not ready for the kind of higher intellectual pursuits. Uh, and then, then yeah. you talk about the Committee of Ten, and I, I never heard this before, but did they actually use the terms the academic and the terminal? Yes. Yes. Yeah, Google it. That was so much done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt that it was a poor, uh, <laughs> this is a cheap shot and it will date this broadcast. But as the uh, Republican nominee has said, perhaps I didn't, I said it in an inelegant way um, in regarding his reference to the, the dependent in America, the 37% of the dependent. Uh, perhaps the Committee of Ten, in retrospect, would say, you know, we said that in an inelegant way. What we really meant is those who are no longer going on to further education. But yes, you put that raking the genius from the rubbish with the academic and the terminal, and it gives you a very real sense of how we've got the system that we do. And by the way, I want to make it clear that I'm not second-guessing Thomas Jefferson. There was no flaw in the system in 1781. The, the fact of the matter is, if I really want to be honest, there was no flaw from, in the way I describe it. The year I graduated from high school in 67, 77% of the workers in America were still unskilled and low-skilled labor. The year I got out of high school, most of my buddies didn't go on to college, and they all drive great cars today. But the fact of the matter is, it's a flaw from the perspective as you started this piece, in terms of what the economy needs. So yes, it is a stunning statement from our perspective today. There are other changes that we've seen. So we have the economic changes, and then we have this sort of new understanding or enriched understanding of cognitive models and intelligence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I love, yeah. the, I love the Binet story, and I've heard it before. You know, but essentially the test wasn't intended to, to measure someone's total life aptitude, but a particular circumstance. No. And whether or not they needed to improve the teaching in an area, as I recall the story. Um, yes. And, and then you talk about the sort of the increased expectations that have been placed on schools. And that few pages is kind of stunning. Uh, I don't expect you to list each one of those things, but we have seen from your perspective, you documented a really significant increase in what we expect schools to do, right? Yes. Yes, it starts. Um, I, I want to give credit where it's due. I'm pretty sure I do in the book. Um, it started with a professor at the University of Indiana who, I mean, I, it's so long ago, I think she was actually using transparencies in an overhead projector. But she said, look at some of the things we've added. And it got me thinking, you know, how many could there possibly be? Well, for the listeners, uh, it's now become, it's either called Vollmer's List, or we've now, frankly, put that in video form as the ever-increasing burden on America's public schools. And every single decade, we add more and more things that we take for granted. For decades, kids had to get to school on their own. Now we've got to go fetch them. 
Well, we all take that for granted, and it's a huge piece of the budget. For decades, kids brought their own lunch, or they went home for lunch. Well, now we feed them twice. And these are the obvious ones. Every week, Steve, I, certainly every month, I get an email or a phone call with somebody saying, we want to tell you the latest. Uh, not long ago from Arizona, there's a whole new section on how to deal with date rape and the threat of date rape. There, there's uh, in, I can't remember which western state it was, but they now are required, it's a mandate, that they teach about proper social media etiquette, including the proper use of sexting, or you know, the ban on sexting, which I didn't really know what it was for a little bit, or, or texting. Every single year we add more and more and more, and we have not added a single minute to the school calendar in eight decades. It's a stunning list. You are correct. Okay, so let's talk about the great conversation. This is the second half of the book. It's the, the detailed handbook, but obviously it's intended as example, and there are some principles in there where you wouldn't have to follow exactly, but understanding the principles would make a really big difference. Um, so right. one of the things that really stood out to me was the ability for anybody in the community to actually kind of spearhead this. Obviously easier yes. from the standpoint of communication and other things for someone in the administration of the school system to do it. But I get the sense that somebody with passion could actually begin this larger cultural dialogue. Sure. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed that I can't give you the exact quote. I bet you a lot of money. Half the people who hear this will be able to tell you. It's for, I'm pretty sure it's from Margaret Mead. You know, can one individual do it? It's the only way it's ever been done. Yes, anybody can start this. Uh, there's a, a woman in Brighton, Michigan, um, who is, I think, tang sort of peripherally involved in the schools. And she's, at, she's taken the bull by the horn. Um, she's organizing this thing. There, there's a, uh, a, a physician. I'm not going to remember where right now. There's a physician that said, we need to do this. I'm going to organize this. Anybody can do it. You're right, certainly from the perspective of the formal conversation. So that in that part four of the book, which really is basically the second half, I talk about a formal conversation and an informal conversation. In the formal conversation, it is easier for, in a perfect world, the administration in partnership with a local business community to bring this conversation out and move it across the community. But anybody can do it. And there are some really sort of critical principles here. Um, your chapter on mapping the community is intended to make the yeah. point of don't ignore the wide variety of people who are going to have an interest and an influence here, um, including not only groups outside of the school system you might think of, but also groups with inside of the school system. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Well, it's funny you say that. I won't mention where, but I recently was gave a speech in a New England state, and after the speech it had been arranged that I was going to sit and talk with the leadership for an hour or so about the nuts and bolts of the conversation. And basically, I reference what you just referred to in talking about casting a wide net and making sure that you really, you have no idea where the, the quote unquote hero of the conversation will come from. You just don't know in the beginning. You've got to crowdsource a little bit. You've got to let it bubble up. And I would say it, and then I don't intend it to be a cheap shot. It's symbolic. It's so symbolic. Everybody at the table would say, yes, you're right, that's what we have to do. And then the superintendent would turn to her assistant and say, so make sure you call this person and this person and that person because they're the ones that will get things done. And I would say, well, yes, you've got to call certain people, but you want to cast a wide net. Everybody's head would nod. Yes, we do, but make sure we get this person and this person. Now, maybe I did not understand the community dynamic, but it's it was symbolic for me of the notion that there's certain people you go to when in fact this is a conversation for everybody. So I want to keep going with the messages, but I'm going to use this as an entree to another question I had from the book. Um, you make reference in a couple of different places 
to the primacy of uh, the family in the kinds of things yeah. that take place. But the book doesn't really address that. Um, it really sort of focuses on the community dialogue. Uh, if you were if you were to expand on the thoughts of how you would influence families in this regard, are there things that you would say about that? That's an excellent question. Um, I guess the answer is even after this period of time of thought, no. I two things inform that that short unfortunate answer. One is that less than 25% of all the taxpayers in America have children in school. So that we could, while it is incredibly important, everybody in this business knows that parental involvement is the key ingredient for student success, more important than social economic status. Even having said that, we can influence, remember, I'm trying to ch make this cultural change. We could influence all the parents. We can involve the parents. It would be better. But we would just have missed almost everybody in the community because they don't have kids in school anymore. So that really heavily informs me, Steve, so that while I see sort of blinking as a beacon on the side this felt need to bring the, to, to strengthen and engage the family, I'm more looking at this bigger piece and seeing how can we get all these folks in the loop. And by the way, I misspoke. You and I both know because you've read the book. I never think we're going to get everybody. 15% of the people are coming with us because they're early adopters. 15% are never coming with us. They don't even like as far as they've evolved in their own lives. It upsets them. They hate change. The 70% in the middle is where the game's going to be won or lost. So I think it's because of my own biases regarding what we need to do first. That I, and I have absolutely no credentials in, the, in that arena. That's why I've left it alone. Thoughtful answer. So some of the other principles that I took out of the great conversation, uh, you've discussed one already, which is the enormous importance of give, bringing positive news, of sort of showcase, showing yes. not only good things that are happening now, but also actually looking at what the American school system has done and um, and being clear about how successful it's been when the story we tell is that it's been failing. What leads you to that conclusion? That we need to tell it or that it has been that successful? That it has been successful. You look at the, you parse the piece oh, of scores and some other things, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. Uh, I know enough now, having seen the movies and talked to people who are smarter than I am, who've gone to Finland, I know that the Finns made a conscious decision in 1972 to change their culture. They recognized they were not deep in natural resources. They don't have a lot of people. They're living up there at the top of the world. They had one way to succeed in the 21st century, and that was to develop their human capital. That's a cultural decision that they made. And according to the prime minister, it took them the better part of 30 years to get there. There are wonderful things that have gone on there. And yet, one of the principal reasons why the Finns are kicking our brains in in these, what I believe are bogus international tests, is that they're all Finns. That they got a 3% immigration rate. That they got a 1.2% child poverty rate. There's no way that that's apples and apples in terms of what we do and what they do. So I'm suspect of all those comparisons. If you want me to say, why do I think we, we are a living, breathing, if the educators listening will allow me to include myself, a living and breathing example of success is that the, we're the world's preeminent power. And to a very large degree, it's because we made the conscious effort to educate the people we needed to be educated in order to succeed in the industrial society. Well, now we're in a place where we're having to rethink what that really means. And we can't ask our parents, because they didn't have to do it. We can't ask our grandparents or our great-grandparents. We haven't had to rethink what it's going to take to continue this two-century story of success based in large part on public education. We have to rethink that, and we're going to, try to, we're going to have to do it on our own.
because it's not been done for over a couple hundred years. We need to lead with the story of what we've done right in order to begin to have the conversation of what we need to do differently. And I constantly am being perhaps overbearing, if to the point of being a scold, in telling the educators, tell the story. Use every opportunity to tell the story. How many, so schools are back in session. How many marquees in front of schools this summer for five, seven, ten weeks, the marquee that thousands of eyeballs looked at every day, the marquee said, have a great summer. You got the letters. Change the message. Tell them how many kids succeeded at XYZ. Tell them how many miles your buses have safely transported the children of that community. For heaven's sakes, tell them how many pounds of cheese you serve in a year. We've got to get the community to understand the central importance of what their schools are doing, or else they'll listen to the garbage that is dribbled out across the airwaves and accept that as reality. So I think we must front end load our successes, what we're doing right. The absolute essential importance of public schools in every community. If they don't know that, why would they rally to our aid? I also love it that you really want to encourage teachers to be a part of the the teams that go out yeah. and do the presenting because they are trusted right. uh, in, in a unique way and because they probably need some some practical experience in doing this, right, in sort of telling these positive stories? Yes, and as I joke with rooms full of teachers all the time, come on, let's face it, some of you entered the system when you were five years old and you never left. I mean, there's how many people out there teaching in our classrooms. It's not an indictment. It's not even a cheap shot. But it does perhaps suggest that maybe a little bit of exposure from showing their work to the community and seeing what the community expects and needs, maybe that cross-pollination would be a good thing. And as you suggested, teachers are trusted more than administrators. They're trusted more than school board members. We have to get them out in front, which, as you know, is the only place in the book where I indicate perhaps this great conversation costs some money. Because if we're going, you mentioned mapping, if we're going to the community's turf on the, at the community's convenience, which I believe are the four most important words in the book, community's turf, community's convenience, if we're going to them and if it's teachers going to them, then they're going to have to find substitutes to cover their class. Because most of the people meet rotary clubs, all sorts of, they meet in a day. But there's one more piece, and I don't want to get off of this without mentioning it. I said there's a formal and an informal track. Teachers have tremendous power that they're not utilizing. They can just adopt five simple steps and begin to change the relationship, begin to get those four prerequisites of progress, community understanding, community trust, community permission to change, and community support. If they would just do five things, and they all start with a letter S. First, stop. Stop bad-mouthing one another and your schools in public. It's so corrosive. It just destroys everything when they do that. I don't expect teachers or administrators to be martyrs. Sometimes they're going to want to gripe. Go ahead, gripe. But gripe to your spouse. That's why we have them. The second S is shift your attention from the negative to the positive. It's the only thing, Steve, I've learned about how the universe works. What you put your attention on will grow stronger in your life. Shift your attention from every little negative thing that's going on inside your building. Find those positive steps of progress. Focus on those. The third S, for heaven's sakes, share something positive. Yes, you're right. I encourage them to be active participants in a formal conversation going out to the public. But they could just share something positive over a fence line, at the grocery store, after church or synagogue. 
The fourth S is once you start this, sustain the effort. Keep it up. Ask yourselves once a week, how many positive things did I say about me, my kids, what I do? I don't know, five. Fine, no judgment, five. Maybe next week you go to six. And the fifth S is start now. Start now. There has never been a better time. The moral imperative, teach every child to his or her full potential, is finally, back to your economic question, finally, we're past the point of raking the genius from the rubbish. We need every single child to succeed. Everyone. Have that conversation now. Teachers in a position to lead this. Peggy's wondering if that list of five S's is in the book, and I don't remember. It is not. It evolved since. I talk about four of them, but I don't call them the four S's because, I'm again, earlier I mentioned not that quick on the uptake. It was after the book was out for two months that people started calling me and saying, you know, you could organize this a little differently, and it works. It's much better. It's so easy to get. So we've only got a couple of minutes left. Were you influenced at all by Deming? Uh, only to the idea that yes is the short answer. Lots of people were reading it. I was when I was running. I, I mean, I ran a manufacturing company, and so you couldn't escape it. And so the idea, I'll tell you a very quick story. One of Deming's ideas was pushing it down to the floor. Push that decision making down. Quality is everybody's job. So I ran a factory. We made ice cream. Pints of super premium ice cream came down the line. And we had a small group of people responsible for quality control. This is a true story. I went in and I told the entire assembled plant, well, we're never a big company, never more than 50 people. I said, everybody, you know, think of them all wearing hairnets in the back. I said, look, I'm giving everybody the right to shut down the production line. You all know what good quality is when you see it. You've all been here long enough. If anybody suspects that you're not getting the, we're not getting the quality that we need, you come to me and we'll shut down production and fix it. And we will reward you with a check. So there was a little extrinsic reward there, I must admit. Nobody did anything for about a week. And then this little girl, just a little slip of a thing, she came to me and she said, I don't think we're getting the right number of cherries inside our cherry vanilla. I know I just made everybody hungry. We looked. She was right. We called everybody together. We thanked her. We gave her a check. The line was shut down 10 times in the next week and a half. That told me that we need to look to the people who are doing the job, who now to a very large extent are overlooked when it comes to the policy decisions that you reference. So to that extent, yes, I've been influenced. I also felt a real connection with Deming's a focus on trust and also on problems being system problems, not people problems. And, uh, and driving out fear. Yes. And all we have today is fear. If you boil down the rhetoric that comes from the, the, the critics on the television and on the radio and in politics, you boil it all down, it's fear, fault, and blame. And one of the most insidious aspects of constantly blaming the people inside the schools is that it takes everybody else off the hook. Well, they're the problem. I don't have to change. When you and I know, Steve, nothing could be further from the truth. We are going to get the schools we need when Americans understand that they need to make sure that every child succeeds. Not because it's just right for the kids, because it's good for them whether or not they have children in school. Jamie, uh, I promise you that we finish on time and we're going to do that. So thank you so much. I'm clapping for you to do that. I hover over the smiley face and hit the applause button. I really love the book. I've, I've, I've enjoyed talking to you even more, I think. Thanks for the work that you're doing and for documenting it. My pleasure, and thanks for this interview. And I'm going to go eat dinner now. <laughs> The book is Schools Cannot Do It Alone. Please read the introduction. There's a great story of Jamie's father and his fourth grade teacher that is worth noting. Don't miss that. Coming up tomorrow, Charles Fidel.
Bell talks to us about what students should learn in the 21st century. We have some ammunition to challenge his priority there. It'll be a lot of fun. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Have a great day or evening. Thanks again, Steve. Thank you. Have a good dinner. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. Was that okay? You were terrific. Oh, thank you very much. I'll send you an email. So where do folks where do folks see this? Futureofeducation.com. And I'll have the okay. I'll have Yeah, you sent that to me in the evening. I'll have the recording up later tonight. Okay. Thanks, Jamie. Take care. I look forward to meeting you. Me too. Hope that happens someday. Okay, bye bye.